Uh, good morning. My name is Russell Atkins. I am filling in today uh, while Tim is away. I want to welcome, first of all, our visitors. If there are any here visiting our class, welcome, welcome. Also want to welcome our members and those listening in via the Internet. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, we pause in our morning to acknowledge you as our creator and our redeemer. We want to thank you for the gift of life and the gift of the Sabbath, for what it represents and for what it says about your character of truth and love and freedom. We ask that you guide our study this morning as we study about faithfulness, as we compare your faithfulness uh, with the faithfulness of uh, those uh, that have been set forth in the Bible as our examples. Please guide our study today. Give us greater understanding and discernment. And please go with each of us uh, as we leave this place. Be with those of our group who are not with us and bring them safely back to us in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. I was asked by Tim to, to skip Lesson 7 because we missed that last week with the blizzard. Ha ha. So we are studying Lesson 8 in our, in our quarterly, The Fruit of the Spirit. And the lesson entitled, The Fruit of the Spirit, is Faithfulness. When you hear the term faithfulness, what, what comes to mind? Dependability. Okay. Dependability. Anything else? Fulfilling an oath that you swore. Okay. Making good on an oath that was, that was made. Anything else? Loyalty. Loyalty. Hebrews chapter 11. We will get to Hebrews chapter 11. It's considered the Faith uh, Hall of Fame. Anything else? I think all of these all of these things are, are adequate synonyms for faithfulness. Um, as I as I began studying to prepare for this lesson, the the thing that kept running around in my mind is: Does it matter what we're faithful to? Can we be can we be faithful to the wrong spouse? Can we join to the wrong spouse? Okay. That, that you're talking about a spouse who would influence you away from God to follow them. Yes, that that's exactly what I'm talking about. And in that and in that sense, um, I think you can be faithful to the wrong spouse. Can you be faithful to the wrong gospel? Interesting. What I hope to examine today is is how faithfulness acts and reacts on us and how it molds and shapes us. Okay? Uh, I hope that I I hope that we clear up that uh, faithfulness is not about a uh, reward penalty system. Faithfulness shapes and molds our characters. And depending on what and, and to whom we are faithful to, that can have drastic outcomes, drastically different outcomes and consequences. So I want you to think about that as we proceed. Alright? Let's start uh, let's start with Sunday's lesson. God is faithful. Um Look down about three-quarters of the page. There's four texts listed there. One is 1 Corinthians 10.13. Someone look that up for me, please. 
Uh, the other is 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Someone else take that. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 3. Someone else handle that one. And Hebrew, Hebrews 10, 23. Someone take that one, please. Um, and whoever's got 1 Corinthians 10, 13, shout it out, please. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will not so that you will be able to endure it. Okay. That's a that sounds like that's a text worth memorizing. Uh first Thessalonians five, twenty three and twenty four. Who has that one? Very God, peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you to also our good. Okay. Uh, next one, second, second Thessalonians 3 3. And the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Okay. So we're, we're detecting a theme here. God is faithful. What's uh, in the last one? Hebrews 10 23. We must continue to hold firm to our Okay, so here we have four statements that God is faithful. My question was, how do we know? What? Just because God says he's faithful, does that make it so? Satan, Satan tells us he's faithful. How, how do we, what evidence do we have that God is actually faithful? He fulfills what he promises. Um, can you give us an example? The whole, when he led the children of Israel, the whole, he said he did this so that they would believe him. I mean, they, he said, can I, I fed you manna, and I got you across the Red Sea, and I, every, I kept my promise every time to you. And he gave that for our Okay. And, and how did that work out for the children of Israel? Well, they didn't all accept it. But he still, he kept his promise. All right. He even let them into Canaan, even though they weren't, they weren't like what he had wanted them to be when they went into Canaan. But he said, I promised it to you, and there it is. Okay, let's examine that uh, a little closer. Yes, sir. I was actually thinking about the wall of Jericho. (laughs) Okay. He promised he'd deliver it, but he didn't deliver it the way that anybody expected. All right. Um, let's talk about the example with uh, him, his leadership uh, with the children of Israel. What's a greater example of faithfulness? Someone who loves his friends or someone who loves his enemies? Okay, the, the children of Israel were, were really the enemy of God, uh, as, as evidenced by their behavior and later on. Um, to me, it's a greater evidence of faithfulness that he, he made good on his promises to that nation, even though they rejected him. So that's why we can depend on him. Okay, good. Now we're getting somewhere. How do we know? We need evidence. I'm hoping that we can move away from the mindset, if we we were ever there, of this God said it, I believe it, that settles it. God God has provided ample evidence, and we need to sort through that. Uh, Are there any other examples of God's faithfulness? We have the evidence of our own lives. We can 
Okay. The, those of us who can look back uh, at the way the way we thought and the way we behave 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, and compare that with now, I think that's a great example of of uh, God's faithfulness. Christy. I would just say his greatest example is he was faithful unto death. Yes, excellent. The struggle against self-temptation to save himself, that's the biggest and best declaration. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, God himself was faithful in that he loved the world so much he gave his only son. Christ as the perfect example of the character and nature and being of God um, was faithful even unto death. Yes? One, one thing I have in my mind is that God puts everything out in the open. He doesn't have anything to hide. And so he lets us be the judge, lets us look at all the evidence, and, and he's not trying to hide in some dark corner because there is something to hide, but instead he just lays it all out there for us. Uh, that's an excellent point. You know, Christ himself said when the Pharisees were accusing him, I've done nothing in secret. I've, I have never never held meetings in a secret place. I mean, he sometimes chose to get away from the crowds just to be with his disciples to instruct them, but he never, he, <clears throat> he never tried to hide anything. That's an excellent point. Yes, sir. What about uh, Corinthians 10, 13, where it says, but God keeps his promise... He will not allow you to be tested beyond your power to remain firm. At the time you put to the test, he'll give you the strength to endure. What about those of us who attempt and we don't endure? Okay. Good, excellent, excellent question. What does that test get us? Any thoughts? For me, it means he had it available and you just didn't take advantage of it. You know, it's like you're reaching ahead to somebody who's falling into an abyss and they refuse to take it. Okay. What's going to happen to them? <clears throat> what? Um, Does that imply that we're being set up? And there's always an escape? Does it? Sin, I mean, as a result of sin, you, you're going to have these trials or heartaches, but, it's not, but, but the strength for us to endure is there. Well, we don't always endure it. I know people who do not endure it, they go from here. So the other side. Okay. Um, James gives us some insight into your question, I think. James 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Uh, perseverance must also must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Uh, there's a, another, uh, down to verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his, his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, he gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Those of us, and, and I definitely include myself, who are tempted and who routinely um, succumb to those temptations, are, do, are doing so because we are allowing it. 
dictate. We're allowing our thoughts and our feelings and our desires to get the better of us. Okay, God has provided ample strength and ample uh, means of escape. We just don't take advantage of it, as was said earlier. Um, one of the things that... <clears throat> Maybe one of the things we could talk about is how one takes advantage of it, not just say, okay. you don't want to blame the person without right. how that happens. That's fair. How, how do we take advantage of, of the means of escape? I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> First thing, recognize that what we're doing is actually sinful. First thing we have to recognize is that it's an actual sin. Because if we don't know it's a sin, or have we uh, basically gone blind in something that we don't know? That's why we were originally given the uh, Ten Commandments. So we know when we were sinning, and we could basically know what we need forgiveness for. Okay, so the Ten, can- ten Commandments act like a diagnostic instrument. They, they diagnose sin. That's why Paul said, I did not know I was coveting until I read the commandment. And then it became clear to him, well, I covet all the time. Okay, so we need, we need an example. Uh, we, need, we need evidence or reference of, of our condition. We need, we need our condition diagnosed. A fair way to say it? Yes, sir. And we've talked about second chances. But sometimes we do stupid things and there's no second chance. I drank, I hit, and I killed, or am killed. Mm-hmm. No second chance, then. Correct. Maybe you are. Oh, no, no, but uh, the result of my stupidity. You were killed? Yeah. And the, after yeah. the indirect? Or I killed somebody? Oh, but if you kill somebody, you're still alive, you still have a chance for forgiveness. And, and is it, we drank, we, sin, that sin is not going to kill us. And God only knows what your heart is. And we, as a human being, can't judge whether that person is going to be... I have a friend whose son was a dope. Mm-hmm. And he got off a dope, got a job, and he was, for a half a year, he was going to school, he was making grades, and on his birthday, he went and got drunk, got on a motorcycle, and he was killed. Mm-hmm. And that's dead. She is in the depth of depression. Uh, and, but to me, God knew his heart. And maybe he could see that he couldn't go any farther. But he had made a turnaround to everybody to see. We need to define the difference between sins and sinfulness. Okay, sinfulness is, is is a state of being, is a state of heart, it's a state of mind, and that's that's evidenced by the Sermon on the Mount, when Christ said, "You say if you commit adultery, you've sinned." I say if you look at the woman with lust in your heart, you've sinned. You say if you commit murder, you've sinned. I say if you hate your brother, you have sinned. Christ is telling us that the acts of commission and omission that we see are symptoms of a disease, of a deeper disease. Okay. Consider, for example, the thief on the cross. This is a this is a man who would die shortly, and he he recognized number one his own condition. 
He recognized his need for something above and beyond what he could, what he had the power himself to do because he couldn't, he couldn't remove himself from that cross. He was there. He was going to die. He was terminal. He recognized that the man hanging next to him was innocent. And he recognized something in Christ's being and bearing that, that transformed his heart and he began the process of recovery while hanging on that cross. Okay? He did not have long in his life for that recovery to, to, uh, to work. But he had begun the healing process. He had recognized that God's ways and methods and principles were superior to those that he had been following in his life. And he died shortly thereafter. So it sounds like we won't even judge us by the general tendencies of our life. He, he was a thief. So his general tendency was kind of bad. But his one last thing, and God saved him, even if that was all he did, was that, that might have been his only good day in his life. But maybe that God judged at that point, he made a sin. God judged it. God will judge him by his heart. Yeah, absolutely. But that's another step that Rachel was talking about. How do we reach for the help that's being offered? And that, you know, mentioned diagnosing the problem, and the next thing would be asking for help. For when something confronts you, don't look to your own inclinations and so on. Look to God. Almost like Jesus in Gethsemane said, not my will which might be to save myself, mm-hmm. that. but your will be done. So when we're faced with temptation, we have a desire to go down the wrong track. We have to do what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, I want this, but I'm going to choose your will because I know your will is for my best, no matter how I deal with the moment. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. I saw a hand. Yes, sir. So often we seem to think that if we change our conduct, that that will change our habit, and that that will change our character, which change our destinies. But you read a text that I thought was very out of very apropos of what we're talking about right here, and the question was, is what, how do we get a change? And the text you read was James 1.14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lusts, or others say desires, mm-hmm. We cannot change those. Those are something that we either inherited or we cultivated as a child. But only God can change those. And when those are changed, then we have a natural conduct that will be natural to have the right habit and the right character will come up right and our destiny will be the right way. So you're saying that... give God permission to change those desires in our hearts. So if I'm reading it correctly, you're saying that once healing is a has begun, symptoms begin to disappear? That's right. Is that an adequate summary? Um, I I do want to caution you, though, that I I would suggest that it actually works both ways. And this is a quote from one of the founders of our church, Ellen White. This is taken from Conflict and Courage, page 52. It says, Every act of life, however small, has bearing for good or evil. How many of you considered that this morning when you're putting your deodorant on or eating your breakfast. Do you consider that that could swing things one way or the other? Faithfulness or neglect in what are apparently the smallest duties may open the door for life's richest blessings or its greatest calamities. It is the little things that test the character. It is the unpretending acts of daily self-denial performed with a cheerful, willing heart that God smiles upon. 
We are not to live for self, but for others. And it is only by self-forgetfulness, by cherishing a loving, helpful spirit, that we can make our life a blessing. The little attentions, the small, simple courtesies, go far to make up some of life's happiness. And the neglect of these constitutes no small share of human wretchedness. What's she saying in this passage? What's she telling us? Everything's important. Okay, everything is important. Anything else? We always hope for some big, amazing thing to happen where we could be a hero and save the world and whatever, and we don't realize that the... You only get to that point or get trusted to that point when you have reached out to God and he's helped you in all these little things. And when you're aggravated at home, being kind to your spouse instead of saying whatever comes into your mind, you know? Mm-hmm. The person right there in your own home should see the best of you, not the worst. And starting there, it can branch out. Okay. What else is she telling us? That maybe discovering God's will isn't any magnanimous thing, that maybe um, he chooses to show his will and mold our characters by those daily um, small choices that are either healing or destructive. We tend to want to use that um, <coughs> distinction rather than sinful, because I don't understand that necessarily. If my mind is warped and diseased, I'm not going to know sin for sure. But I, can, I think that most of us, even in some of the steps that we've described that aren't familiar to maybe us personally here, but um, people have a sense of what's destructive um, for themselves or others, and making those choices little by little, it's not going to be, at least it's never been for me, a, a neon sign across the sky, but I know that I have a choice to make this minute and next minute and next minute that's going to heal me. Or? Or... Not. Is going or is going to sear your conscience to the point where you are beyond healing, um, right? I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I have a question about the thief on the cross. Okay. If he hadn't been next to Jesus, what are his chances of being saved? Would he have found Jesus if he had continued in his thievery? But was it because he was next to Jesus? Would he not have been saved if he had hit rock bottom and been hanging on the cross? Uh, that's a good question, and, and I can say in all candor that I don't know. But the Bible um, says God gives every man a measure of faith, so everyone has, does have a chance. Right. Uh, I think, and, and I'm, not, I'm not 100% certain on this, but I think there are some Ellen White references that, that suggest that the thief, the thief on the cross who repented had 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 some prior exposure to Christ's teaching and, and may have heard him at, at one of his gatherings, at one of his, you know, where he was teaching the crowd. He may have been the crowd where it was being taught. And the Holy Spirit was working on his heart prior to him hanging on the cross. And, and well, you know that the Holy Spirit is working for each of us. I mean, even in your own life, who am I? I mean, I'm no one special that the Holy Spirit would be working with me, but he found a little farm girl in the middle of Illinois and was striving with me and working with me all these years. You know? I mean, that is a huge testimony that God is working with every individual. Well, I, consider the testimony that he's the Holy Spirit is reaching out to Osama bin Laden. This the Holy Spirit tried to reach Hitler and Stalin. And... Um, you know, the biblical example of King Manasseh, who sacrificed his own son to, to a pagan god. 
Um, and it wasn't until Manasseh was in prison uh, that that he finally listened to the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit, yeah, it, every human on the planet now and everyone that's walked the planet, the Holy Spirit has been has been trying to reach and, and to transform. But consider what measure of faith he must that faith must have come to, because here he is right next to Jesus, but to all visual eyes, he was being killed. <laughs> And mm-hmm. it wasn't being the salvation of man. He was a helpless person being hung there right next to the thief to all visual purposes. Right. His disciples had, had mostly left him and thought, well, this is the end. We thought good things were happening, but I guess maybe not, and, mm-hmm. and we're doubting and so on. And here's a thief who obviously had to have had some exposure to say he's an innocent man because he, how would he know if he hadn't had some idea of his life or what? And yet, to to his eyes, being hung and killed right next to the thief, to Jesus, he still could see beyond. He could see beyond that when no one else really could too much. Another man was the man that picked up the cross and carried it for Jesus. I don't know what his background was or really where he was from. Simon. So Jesus was making a big impression on him too, and, and a lot of people there. Oh, yeah, unquestionably. Uh, you know, I want to get back to the the issue. That was the verse started this discussion about um, being tempted and and you know yielding to those temptations repeatedly. Uh, I don't know how many of you ever considered this, but this is something I, I ponder often. And that is the how exponentially more difficult it must have been for our Savior on this earth, because Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. Most of us, well, let me rephrase that. Most of me, um, when I'm tempted, Satan doesn't have to work very hard. He just, you know, tempt, fail. Um, When Christ continually, continually resisted temptation, can you imagine how much harder Satan worked in order to get Christ to yield? And consider how much more difficult... His experience was than what you and I deal with. It is staggering. He had the ability to eliminate it at any given, even with a thought. And the, the, the beauty of it is that the, the source of power and the source of strength that Christ kept connected to and this is why the, the, the branch and the vine analogy um, really works well here. The, the vine that, that Christ connected to is the same vine that you and I can connect to. We, we have the same, same source of strength and power to resist those temptations and to change our, our desires, to change our lust. Every, every act of faithfulness or unfaithfulness molds and shapes our character in one direction or another. And makes us either fit for heaven or not. Yes, sir. I think uh, one thing we have to do our part in this whole thing is discipline our mind. One of the ways we discipline our mind is what we read, what we see, what we do, the life we live, the lifestyle we share. But how are we involved in this world? Because a lot of us will pray and we'll study, but we're still living the same lifestyle. It's very difficult for the Holy Spirit to work through a life like that and be tempted. And, and I like the thoughts because. When you overcome through the power of the Holy Spirit, the next onslaught is less. When you overcome, when you're overcome, you continue to yield to that temptation, 
the ability to, to have victory is very difficult. But that comes through what we read, what we listen to on the radio, our internet experience. That is the way we discipline our minds. It doesn't matter if it's a hundred times a day. When the temptations come to us, we can still cry out, Get thee behind me, Satan, in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Sometimes I hear many people today, when they finish their prayers, they say, Amen. We're told in the Bible, if you ask anything, ask it in my name. And it's a simple, childish prayer to cry out to Jesus, Please save me, help me. But that's what's required. And that's how we must, that's our part in disciplining our minds, is to make sure we're not involved in things where the Holy Spirit is more difficult to, to get through to us. Let's move to Tuesday's lesson. Hebrews 11 was brought up earlier, and I want to touch on that. Um, I want to make sure we examine that a little bit. Uh, the first paragraph of Tuesday's lesson is read Hebrews 11, the list of characters who have given examples of faithfulness. Pick three characters and write down how their faithfulness is revealed. Um, the, for those that study the lesson ahead, what, what three characters jumped out at, at you? I mean, I have three that jumped out at me, but I want to, I want to find out which ones jumped out uh, at the rest of the folks. I thought Moses' parents. Don't okay. Them, yeah, that that was one of the one that was one of the three I had. It took great faith for them to realize that their son was something special, and not be afraid of the king swords. Well, yeah. Okay, my question in that was. Might there have been? Might there have even been an element of of self-serving in in hiding their child? I mean, what what parent wants their child given up to be to be put to the sword? Might, might there have been a little bit of self-preservation in them, where they they took the chances and, and decided to hide their hide their son because they wanted to keep their son? I mean, I don't want to be blasphemous, but think about it. My favorites is Jonathan, David's friend, Jonathan, King Saul's son. Mm-hmm. There's somebody that gave of himself. You know, never mind what happened to him. He was willing to step aside, and and he was faithful in his friendship with David, willing to for self to die, even you know, to step aside and let David be what God wanted him to be. Okay. Anyone else? Any of these other characters mentioned? There are quite a few of them. Moses' parents were, were was one of the ones that jumped out at me. Samson was another one that jumped out. And we don't we don't ordinarily consider him a you know. Samson was a a troubled man. Conceited. Uh, he may have been self-indulgent, certainly. Um, but the he, he's well known for you know one big failing, and, and that's you know his dealing with Delilah and then getting his hair cut off, and then being tied to the temple, you know, pillars and bringing them down. But Judges tells us that he was a faithful judge for twenty years. He was a faithful judge in Israel for twenty years. Uh, in, in, during the time of the Philistines, how often do we do we skip over that part? Do, do, do we remember his 
and being a faithful leader of Israel for, for two decades. Yeah, we kind of remember him for, for his mistakes or his killing the lion or coming up with funny riddles in order to get uh, lots of clothes. Is, is that not our human image, though? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Show people really with their foibles and their mistakes and their failures, whatever. It kind of is a little bit more encouraging to me. Exactly. You know, because we know that he's going to be in heaven, and even if he committed suicide, mm-hmm. whatever. Yep. You know, he's he's going to be in heaven because it says he is. Right. And you know, all all of the people mentioned in this faith um, chapter had had failings you know Abraham and Sarah when they you know he lied about Sarah being his wife she she got him to take her maidservant because she was trying to accelerate the process of him having an heir you know David with his uh, mess with uh, Bathsheba um, Rahab a prostitute she was another she was the one of the other ones that jumped out at me one of my favorite authors um, makes the point that the Bible tells stories of everyday people, not the people that were exceptions. We, we like to take a person and either make them a saint or a sinner mm-hmm. and, and not allow for any, you know, we, we talk about David and oftentimes when I hear David talked about in discussion, it's how good a man he was, and like you pointed out with Samson, it was how, how his failures destroyed him. Right. But you look through the Bible, and it is consistent in the fact that each one of these people that are discussed and the stories are told about, they had their great moments, and they had their failings. The Bible is a, a, a book of common people not the exceptional saints or sinners. Yeah, it's very encouraging, isn't it? Something uh, I really like about uh, Moses, at first he was willing to kill to get where he thought he should be. After 40 years of trial in the uh, tending sheep in the wilderness, God finally figured that he was ready. And then it calls him, I mean, we think of him as a great leader and, you know, helping to open up the Red Sea and all this kind of thing. And yet the Bible just talks about him as being the humblest of all men. If you think of anyone in your life that is never thinks of themselves before someone else, you know, who's always humble, caring, not trying to self-seek in any way, and then you imagine this great leader of Moses is that kind of guy. We don't normally think of great leaders as being that kind of person. I think it's pretty mean that he didn't start his life work until he was 80. Yeah. <laughs> right. We've got time. <laughs> he lived to what, 120? It'd be like if he lived to be 90 and he started 60. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Before we move on from this, uh, consider for a minute Rahab and her, and her situation. And Tim has, Tim has talked about this before. And it it continues to make a deep impression on me. Um, this is a a pagan prostitute, and two you know the spies come from Israel, and and she has a choice. 
this is a pagan prostitute. There must be Christian prostitutes. <laughs> and I thought of Mary Magdalene. Think about it. Mary Magdalene came and Lazarus and Martha were very rich. It was a rich family that Jesus stayed with. People don't understand. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. And what's interesting is that one of the leaders of the church led Mary into her profession and what she did. And Jesus delivered her, but he didn't dawn me until he just said that. I know he didn't mean to say that, he didn't mean it that way, but there must be. In our church sometimes, we look at the outside, it's amazing. And uh, we look at the smoking and the drinking, and we, we line those two up and somebody smokes it. It is destructive, but we say, aha. But yet, many of us have these other things inside. That uh, I remember the story of a, uh, two men that were very evil men, but they were very extremely rich men. They belonged to the same church. And one day out, one of these men died suddenly. And the other man went to the pastor and said, I have a large donation I'd like to give to the church. He had a check in his hand on one condition. The pastor said, what's that? When you uh, preach at my brother's funeral, you say that uh, he was a saint. The pastor thought of that for a minute, a large donation. Okay, I can do that. So they got to the funeral, and the pastor got up there, and the brother was there. He pointed at this cat, he said, this was an evil man. He lied, he stole from people, he hurt a lot of people. After a few minutes, he said, but according to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> and I think about this sometimes, because we look here, and how does Christ look? Sometimes we say, this, this, this is a saint. Christ looked at Rahab, and probably called her that long before this. And what did Rahab do? She lied. Mm -hmm. You know, so sometimes when we measure people, we really measure them wrong. Yeah, I, I think that's a valid point. I mean, the, the scripture uses the uses the term prostitute to refer to Israel. Right. Uh, you know, apostate Israel. He uses it in Revelations to refer to um, a form of religious system that is contrary to God's ways and methods and principles, the one that has set itself up above, you know, it, it, who has tried to set itself above the laws of God and tried to change times and laws. Um, he, he had one of his prophets, Hosea, marry a prostitute in order to provide an object lesson for Israel. Uh, and every time the prostitute left him for another man, Hosea went and got her back and fathered another child with her and named it Named the child, you know, some some name that was derogatory, uh, in an effort to to reach Israel. So uh, the idea of a a Christian prostitute or a pagan prostitute. But, I mean, that even today in those cultures, if something happens to a woman where she gets raped or she gets, you know, too close or even in the same room with man. Um, she's accused then of being sort of damaged goods. Nobody will have her. Nobody will marry her. And she's sort of left to fend for herself, especially after her parents die. And no one's taking over her health. She doesn't have the right to own property. She doesn't have the right to do anything without a man. And she's left, you know, we judge him harshly. And so um, Simon brought Mary into this life. She had. We don't know how that happened, whether he took her against her will or whatever, but now she was damaged goods and she couldn't have 
any way of living, perhaps. We don't know. We look on the outside. We have no idea how someone was brought up. We have no idea the difficulties they face or the perplexities they're living under now. But our influence to them can either be the final straw in their life, of, you know, where we present so much of a burden to them by our judgment and our way of looking at it, or we can be the very helpful hand of God. You know, God, they can't see God, but they can see us. They can't maybe hear it, but they can hear us. And we need to be that kind of God's influence in their life. And well said. Much of the judge. Um, let's look ahead to Thursday's lesson. If we have time, we'll come back to some of the things we missed. Uh, this first paragraph uh, asks a question, and I think it's an excellent question. So could, we be, could it be that we are suffering another great disappointment? Not that we fixed another date for the coming of Jesus, but something just as real, if more subtle, and that is a diminished emphasis on the second coming, if for no other reason than we, had, we expected it to have already happened by now. Any thoughts or questions about that? No? You guys, you guys, I'm, I'm the only one that had... <laughs> Oh, That's some questions. Have you caught your attention? Do you agree that we have a diminished emphasis on the second coming? I do. Um, when was the last time you heard a sermon on the second coming? On, you know, there's always the, there's often the undercurrent of you better be ready because God's coming to judge us. There's often that undercurrent, but when was it? When was the last time you heard a a, a sermon extolling and looking forward to the second coming? It's often if, if the second coming is mentioned, it's often mentioned with a fear undercurrent. That's why we don't talk about it very much. Yeah, exactly. That's coming. Exactly. Yeah. Well, why do we want to discuss this with our friends and our family and our our coworkers? Uh, in in terms in glowing terms of of you know happiness and can't wait, can't wait. and finally um, you know we'll we'll be through with this this earth and it's it's uh, wretchedness. Yes, sir. Oh, I think it's just human nature. Uh, we all understand that there's going to be great tribulation before the coming of Christ, and and don't we all kind of humanly shirk from that going through that experience? No, I do. Uh, I think Scripture is quite clear that. The faithful that are on the earth at that time will be well protected in that tribulation. It won't be easy, but if if God can use ravens to feed Elijah or Elisha, Elijah, Elijah, um, you know, surely He will meet our needs in the back. You, you said um, those that are faithful. How many of us have faith in that? A lot of us are not quite sure if we're saved. We're a little uncomfortable with that. Uh, Jesus is coming soon because we're not quite sure we're ready for him yet. Correct. Oftentimes when we think about salvation, it, it, is, it ends up becoming a self-absorbed endeavor. Am I going to be saved? Will I be saved? Uh, I, I need to be saved. I, I want to be in heaven. I hope I'm saved. How can I know I'm, I'm saved? Instead uh, of leaving things to the creator of the universe who numbers the hair on our head, in my case, zero, 
he, he doesn't he doesn't have to he doesn't have to think about that one. This is zero. <laughs> yeah, he's right. <laughs> Instead of leaving it to to the to the creator of the universe and 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 understanding that, Lord, if if your universe, if your heaven is going to be better without me, then I leave it in your hands to do what's best. If you know that I'm going to make a contribution to uh, to heaven and to to the body of Christ that's up there, then it's in your hands. You know, we, we oftentimes get so wrapped up in and my salvation and our salvation, and I think it's a great pit that that Satan has dug for us to fall into. We know that um, God, you know, God will not be mocked. That whatever we, whatever we do in our own lives, will bear its own fruit. But as far as as far as actually being uh, sure of where we are as we go into the quote time of trouble or great tribulation, whatever you want to call it, um, my opinion is that that. Uh, a lot of people could be killed. A lot, a lot of people could just die um, way too soon. I mean, way out of way out of sequence with their with their natural life. But like Tim has said, you know, that doesn't mean that that uh, that's the end. You know, and um, so whatever that experience has or holds for us in the future, um, you know. It's going to happen one way or another, you know. So why worry about it? You know, that's that's my opinion. Well, I think it's clear that God is is waiting on a people, on a church that are so unified in thought and mind and bearing, and so so in harmony with His ways and methods and principles that they cannot be moved from that. And when they when this people are unified and strengthened and strong enough, then the end will come. And those who are not unified or those who are still weak in their faith, he may well put to sleep. He just may put them to rest in the grave. And and they those that doesn't mean those people won't be saved. It just means that they may not be strong enough to endure the the great time of trouble that that is coming. Now that's not for us to worry about. There was a Oh, yes. I think our puny minds just do not understand what the coming of the Lord means. We are so stuck in this world. We we are so focused on this world. Uh, you're young. You don't really want the Lord to come yet until you married and had children. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got no marriage and, get, and things like that. You're, you're having a fairly good life. You have a good home, food to eat, friends. Uh, it's far removed, but should we not have a picture that we are so close to God that the thing that we want to see is Jesus? We want to see this God. It's not even the ones who have died and and that we would be reunited with. It is the Lord that we really want to see that we're in love with, no matter what happens to us. Thank you. Talking about what she was just referring to there. I'm Finished uh, uh, World magazine this week. In there, we're talking about the Muslims. 
Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. If you haven't taken time to read that, read that article in there on the Muslim. And how that the Lord presented to a sheep, a sheep, three times in a vision about the Adventist church. And they have contacted us about that. Very interesting article. Thank you. I, I was unfamiliar with it. Uh, I want to close with some more quotes on faithfulness. Um, and I want you to detect the theme that's running through these. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 222. There are a few who realize the influence of the little things on life upon the development of character. Okay, this is very similar to the first one I read. Nothing with which we have to do is really small. The very circumstances we meet day by day are designed to test our faithfulness and to qualify us for greater trusts. By adherence to the principle in the transactions of ordinary life, the mind becomes accustomed to hold the claims of duty above those of pleasure and inclination. Minds thus disciplined are not wavering between right and wrong, like the reed trembling in the wind. They are loyal to duty because they have trained themselves to habits of fidelity and truth. By faithfulness in that which is least, they acquire strength to be faithful in greater matters. This is from Christ's Object Lessons, page 361. It is in the faithfulness, the loyalty to God, the loving service, that wins divine approval. Every impulse of the Holy Spirit leading men to goodness and to God is noted in the books of heaven. And in the day of God, the workers through whom he has wrought will be commended. This is from the Great Controversy, page 482. Every man's work passes in review before God and is registered for faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Opposite each name in the books of heaven is entered with terrible exactness, every wrong word, every selfish act, every unfulfilled duty, and every secret sin. Uh, with, let's see, every secret sin with every artful dissembling. Heaven sent warnings or reproofs neglected, wasted, wasted moments, unimproved opportunities, and the influence exerted for good or evil with its far-reaching results are all chronicled by the recording angel. Okay, and one last one. This is uh, from Great Controversy 315. The watchmen on the walls of Zion should have been the first to catch the tidings of the Savior's advent. The first to lift up their voices and proclaim him near. The first to warn the people and to prepare for his coming. But they were at ease, dreaming of peace and safety, while the people were asleep in their sins. Jesus saw his church like the barren fig tree covered with pretentious leaves, yet destitute of precious fruit. There was a boastful observance of the forms of religion, while the spirit of true humility, penitence, and faith, which alone could render the service acceptable to God, was lacking. Instead of the graces of the Spirit, there were manifest, manifest pride, formalism, vainglory, selfishness, and oppression. A backsliding church closed their eyes to the signs of the time. God did not forsake them or suffer his faithfulness to fail, but they departed from him and separated themselves from his love. As they refused to comply with the conditions, his promises were not fulfilled to them. Anyone detect a theme running through here, through these quotes? Little things mean a lot. Little things matter. Anything else? It also says train, discipline. Something that is our part of the power of the Holy Spirit. We are molding and shaping our characters right now. And based on those choices, uh, those choices are going to determine our outcome, one way or the other. God's not the one that separates from us. We choose to separate from him. I just returned from Haiti. Uh, yesterday, God bless you. Saw people with a will to live that's indescribable. 
incredible. And we were at the Adventist Center there, the full Panadra in the hospital, and uh, doing surgeries there, and it's amazing the people, they're a kind people. They ought to be the maddest people in the world with the French regime they've had to, they're not. They're loving and they're kind. Uh, each day about a thousand patients would come, could only see 400 of them. And one mother there was, had a toddler here and a toddler here and breastfeeding a little baby. And kids would come to me and I, you know, we were given one meal of their day and then the rest of the food, what we brought, power bar or something. And the hospital provided, so I'd eat a little bit of it and then I'd go out and look for somebody, one particular person I wanted to give that meal to. And little kids, you know, they were rubbing their tummies as a way to speak to me that they were hungry. And, and, and Dole, it's a, it's a Creole language there. Dole meant water, they needed water. It's just incredible. It's indescribable. You, 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 can't, you can't really describe it. I was waiting because the airport's in, is, is, um, it's been condemned yet and they've got to fix that. So we were staying in the tent. We were waiting for a military flight because we couldn't get out. All the flights were canceled. So there were our soldiers and French soldiers there. In a room about half the size, we waited for 17 hours for a flight. You couldn't go out except for a potty break. You were taken by soldiers to the to the uh, porta potties to go, and then you were marched back. You stayed there for 17 hours, and I thought about it, looking out that barricade and things were going on all day. And finally, at midnight, we got a flight on C-15. And when I was in the service, 68, 69, that's a mighty big plane. It was just to see our people, Americans there, and the uh, border officers, custom officers, what a relief. And I thought about that because if we were taken by Red Cross back. I have a Red Cross blanket that I kept for that trip. And we got back, we didn't know where we were going to, we got on the, on the plane, and I said, Charleston, North Carolina, I was supposed to be in Miami, but it didn't matter, I was going back to America. And as I thought about that, I said to myself, wait till we see Jesus coming in the clouds. I can't wait to go home. But see, the problem is we think this is our home. Right. And that's where we're mixed up. And I challenge everybody today, get ready, because what I saw in Haiti is what you're going to see in America. It's not long and coming. We're too comfortable. Change your thermostat. Set it. Because I tell you, we need Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your input. Uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your faithfulness, certainly as evidenced by um, you sending your son to reveal your character, and to die for us, so that he may destroy death and him who holds the power of death and uh, give us life and immortality, bring life and immortality to light. Uh, please continue to guide and direct our class. Uh, I, again, I ask that you be with those who are not with us uh, this week and bring them safely back to us in the weeks ahead. Please continue to bless this class, both collectively and individually. And when you come again, may we all be standing ready. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, enjoy the rest of your weekend.